Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Gerhard's Sacred Meditations. We are looking at the desire for eternal life. We're going to finish this, and then we're going to retrace our steps then. As we've looked at this text, as, as we've looked at you know, the splendors of what eternal life has in store for us, what are the scriptural foundations of this teaching? So as we, as we draw to a, a conclusion with the text proper, with Gerhard's meditation on this theme, we'll then retrace our way back through some of the foundational scriptures that teach us about the intermediate state, and then also tangentially about the resurrection of the body, the new heavens and the new earth, and the final state. We'll have the goal of refreshing ourselves and re-clarifying in our minds our uh, micro and macro eschatology. If I don't explain what that means, uh, remind me and I'll do so. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off in Gerhardt's text, in your handout, and if you don't have it, fear not. Um, there's not much text left to cover, so you won't uh, be left behind for long. Um, but we left off in his text on page 272, if you did bring or otherwise retain your handout. Back on 268, we have the theme of this text, or as close as you get to it, at the very bottom of 268, the last three lines really do a fantastic way of summarizing this. Whatever the elect can possibly long for, there they shall find to their infinite satisfaction, for then shall they see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13.12 So everything, all of our unfulfilled longing, all of our the problems we have in this life, the unmet desires, the things in which we see, this is the way the world should work, why doesn't it work this way? This is the way my life should have gone, why didn't it go this way? All of those needs are met in eternal life, but most specifically in the one who is eternal life. And that's maybe the key takeaway as this sentence we just read indicates, then shall they see him face to face. Everything we long for is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So obviously there will be a continued creation. We will continue as creatures, all of us redeemed, all of us restored, all of us entirely and completely righteous and holy, and all of us fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus himself. Now, over to 272, where we left off, roughly, if we look at page 272, and you drop down uh, the fourth line from the top, I'll simply point this out, and this will be a place for us to pick back up, a little bit of overlap from last week. 
But this is an, a, a kind of an all-important point. He rightly fears death, who fears to go into the presence of Christ. Now we talked about this a little bit um, last last week. Here, fear is not the same as terror, but would rather be something like holds in awe, trembles before. We can see in secular culture in the world all around us a a holding in awe of of death, a trembling in the face of death, a desire to do anything we can to save ourselves and save everyone else from death. Sometimes we even try to avoid death so extremely that we end up falling into death on the other side. So this fear and terror of death, Gerhard here masterfully says, it's not death we should be afraid of, but the one who has the power over death. We should hold in awe our Lord Jesus Christ and tremble before him and let our knees bend not at the thought of our own mortality, but at the thought of being before him. And of course, this isn't, um, this isn't strictly speaking what we Lutherans would call law. That is to be terrified of Christ because we are sinners and he is righteous because the just condemnation for our sins is eternal death. It's, it's rather to be in awe and trembling in, the, in that sense only than to be afraid or in terror at, at he who is the living God embodied in human flesh. And then I think conversely, and the psalmist gets at this, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The deepest possible reverence one can feel for Christ, the deepest possible fear one can feel for Christ, isn't strictly speaking terror. It is, it is the knowledge of his unspeakable goodness. Unimaginable purity, goodness, goodwill, selfless love, selfless love for us. The kind of thing that makes you feel like instantly unworthy. The kind of thing that makes you feel like your whole, uh, be, your whole being is going to vaporize and evaporate and blow away like dust. His goodness. Now, obviously, presupposed within that is his omnipotence, his, you know, his, his perfect power, his, the fact that he is the one by whom and through whom all things are made. No doubt about that. But then that this very one is the one who so loved us that he came as a shepherd searching out his sheep, laying down his life for his sheep, and that he knows you so intimately, he knows you better than you know yourself. And was willing, down to, was willing to lay down his unspeakably majestic divine life for your sake and for my sake. I mean, there is no more humbling, no more fearful thought that a human being can possibly have. I think when we're grasping it like this, we're grasping fear properly. You know, the, the where where if we if we are going to get anxious at all about death, we should get anxious about it because we're going at someplace a little bit more important than say the White House, someplace a little bit more important than say to your favorite athlete's mansion, or your favorite pop singer's concert where you have backstage passes and get to see them face to face and 
No, all of these things are as absolute nothing. And so our hearts are our hearts are anxious as we look forward to death because we're anxious to see him face to face. We're anxious to have him absolve us. We're anxious to know the power of his love. And thus we fear him, not death. Death is just the gateway to see him face to face. I think this is a marvelous thought, as you can tell. It's one of these thoughts that you want to chew on and you want to play with in your mind and you want to wrestle with. This is the joy of theology, um, is, to, is to consider an idea and consider it from all manner of angles, um, just extracting the wisdom from it. And this line is, is a great one for just that purpose. We, we need to train ourselves not to fear death, but to fear the Lord, to respect Him, because with Him there is forgiveness of sins. With Him there is a reversal of death. Gerhard continues, Thou art also to enter the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, why then dost thou so defile thyself with sin when it is plainly written that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth? Revelation 21-27. What's the rhetoric here? If this is the one who has saved us, if this is where we are going to see him face to face and to live in his abode, if this is the holiness we desire, then let us use that to inspire us to daily drown the old Adam, to daily rise and emerge to live before this Christ in righteousness and holiness. So, in other words, let us use this desire for eternal life to leverage it against the temporary and deceitful pleasures of sin here in this life. So it's a great move and a really utilitarian move in terms of this doctrine. Take all of this swelling energy and desire you have to see the Lord and receive his blessings and leverage that here and now to have faith in him and to drown the old Adam and put it to death. Crucify the sin that remains in us. Gerhard continues, Thou desirest to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Revelation 22, 2. But then thou must first apprehend Christ, the true tree of life, in this life. For it is written, Blessed are they which wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, here a reference to Revelation 7.14. What, what, what two things are going on here in Gerhard's theology? Well, you have where we left off this latter thought. Blessed are they which wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Can you think of what that would be a concrete reference to? Baptism. In fact, the word baptism means washing. So to be washed in baptismal grace, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, it's a strange heavenly laundry where the scarlet of our sins meets the scarlet of His blood and somehow that makes a white robe, glorious, without spot or stain. And then there is this allusion to the tree of life. Of course, Revelation 22 Verse 2 refers to eating of the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. But what is the precursor to this? Or rather, what is the true tree of life in this life? 
What is it? What do you think? What's the true tree of life? The cross. The tree of death has become the tree of life. And what's the fruit of this tree of life? What hangs from it? Jesus. Thus he says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. Thus we eat of the true tree of life. Now think of how this is exactly opposite to, uh, beautifully, symmetrically opposite to what we see in Genesis. Remember the, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil? God said, don't eat it. It's death if you do. Eve looks at it and sees that it is pleasing to the eye and looks good as food. So her reason and all her senses say, this is life. This is wisdom. This is knowledge. This is to become like God. And God says, don't pay attention to your, to the appearances, to your own reason. Pay attention to my word. There's death in there. Well, she ate it and we all know what happened. Now, what's the reversal? What's the symmetry? What could be less a tree of life? What could you possibly imagine would be less a tree of life than a cross, a dead tree used for execution, upon which hangs a dying and finally a dead man. And what could be more repugnant than to say, eat his body or drink his blood? What could be more repugnant than this specter of cannibalism? Whereas Eve sees that it is pleasing to the eye and good for food, when we look at Jesus hanging from the cross, we say that is displeasing to the eye, and the absolute last thing I'd consider that to be is food. So what once more has our Lord done? Now he is enshrouded in this unpleasantness to our reason and our senses of the cross and of eating the body and blood, but inside of which he has put what? Forgiveness of sins which means life and salvation. You see how God works in both instances. He does not want us to believe ourselves, our reason and senses. He wants us to believe in Him above ourselves. Now, hum humanity failed that test. So, by the means through which we were led into sin and death, He's going to simply reverse that and bring us back excuse me, bring us back by forgiveness and life. So too in the cross, we are told by the Lord, this is the tree of life. This is his body and blood given and shed for our forgiveness. Again, the reason and senses recoil to this, but now we attune our ears to his word and listen and receive. So beautiful references woven in here to baptism and the Lord's Supper. The worthiness to partake of the tree of life is received when our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's really the idea. If we pick back up there after the colon, or just pretty much smack right in the middle of 272, if you're looking on the left-hand side of the page, it's that capital blessed. Blessed are they which wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7.14, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. This is a quotation of Revelation 22, 14. 
without or outside are dogs and sorcerers. Revelation twenty two fifteen. Beware then of impurity and unchastity. Without also that means outside of the of the great city are murderers. Beware then of excessive anger. Um, riffing here, of course, on Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to you of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother without cause. Okay, so here riffing on that idea. Beware then of excessive anger. Without or outside of the city are idolaters. Beware then of avarice. What's avarice? Greed. Riffing on Jesus' words that you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Thus the connection between idolaters and avarice or greed. Beware then of avarice and of making an idol of any worldly object. And that's one that's you know worth meditating upon because as we've seen, as we've seen, um, faithfulness to God in this world requires us to be willing to set aside all the things of this world in order to be faithful to Him. That can include spouse. That can include children. That can include all your goods and possessions. That can include your reputation and standing. All things, because they are simply of this life and are of no greater use, all these things must be set aside. We must be willing to set these things aside for that which is eternal, for that which is truly worthy of our praise, truly worthy of our worship. So we cannot make any idol of any worldly object. There's a sense in which um, God has redesigned the fallen world to do exactly this for us. Into the world you come with nothing, and then you slowly grow in your abilities, you slowly grow in your property and the things you consider valuable to you, and then as you progress along through life, what happens? Piece by piece, they start getting taken away from you. Piece by piece, loved ones die. Possessions lose their glory. They fade away. They lose their importance. Things decay. Health atrophies. And finally, we see even our dependence might, if we live long enough, even, even our independence might be taken away from us. We find ourselves fully dependent just as we were when we were born. There's this kind of arc or cyclical kind of nature to life where we gain, 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 and then it all starts getting taken away. A perfect, I mean, how could you design something more perfect to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed is the name of the Lord. It's in the taking of a, away, it could happen at any stage in life, but particularly the sort of the general norm is in the latter half of life, you know, can you trust God when he's giving you good things, when things are getting better and increasing and everything's going great and greater? Can you trust him now when 
he starts to remove those things and it becomes less and less. It's the way in which God has redesigned life to remove from us, whether we like it or not, all earthly idols. We see that in the end, whatever it is we've put our hope and trust in in this life cannot save us from death, cannot avail before our Creator to whom we are going. Only one can, and that's our Lord Jesus. So this is a a beautiful way in which God fulfills this. If we have eyes to see and if we can interpret our own lives accordingly, we can see God's kindness in removing all worldly idols from us as we progress along. Well, I'll pause there because I need a sip of coffee. Any thoughts or questions you have? Otherwise, we'll keep marching along. He's still in the mid, he's still midstream, mid thought. All right, everyone's content. Fine with me. Okay, one second, we'll get your microphone. I did have one question about the, the fear, the fear of God. I'm reminded of that. Um, uh, Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. And I think I, people tend to think, oh, that he's talking about Satan. But I don't think he's, no. I think he's talking about God there. Absolutely. And so I think this uh, passage suggests that. But you can kind of look at it both ways. If you're in awe and fear of God because he's powerful and forgiving, you're going to be in awe and fear of him when you go to meet him. And if you're afraid of death because you're afraid of going to be judged, you're also going to be afraid to die. You know, if you're afraid to go to be judged, you're going to be afraid to die. So right. it really cuts both ways for both the believer and the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Very well said. And we might analyze this, this thought, um, he rightly fears death, who fears to go into the presence of Christ. We might, we might even analyze it via the angle of the simul justus epicotter, that I'm at the same time a saint and a sinner. And so insofar as I'm a sinner, the, the fear is unmitigated. It's just terror. I might not, he might cast me out into hell as I deserve. Um, insofar as I'm a saint, I trust him more than I trust myself. Yeah, absolutely. There's still, yeah, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Like that, I think that sentiment. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, the scriptures by and large speak of us dominantly as saints, not as sinners, as saints, not even as sinner saints, and that's the scripture's predominant way of speaking, I think that it's, it's only fitting for us to predominantly analyze the line in, in that respect, that this is the kind of filial fear you know, that you can think of like a little son who sees his, his dad who can you know, do everything, and he looks up to him and he cherishes him, but there's this sense of like, well, part of why he can do everything is because he's strong and fearless and isn't subject to the emotions I am, but is good is good and sometimes good for me in such a way that I don't even I don't even recognize it as good until down the line and so there's just this sense of you know this filial fear is being in the presence of someone you trust more than yourself who bends whose power is infinitely greater than yours but who bends that power to your infinite good it is such a pleasant fear <laughs> and I think I, I think too I mean I don't want to get into some big historical debate about it But I think, too, that this is a profitable way when we consider the catechism, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. I think it's a profitable way to think of fear in that context, too. 
sure we can think of it in terms of like the terror of the old Adam, but this is, you, you remember how when God states the commandments in Exodus, he begins it, I the Lord your God. <laughs> I the one who have claimed you in grace. I the one who have baptized you in the Red Sea. I the one who have set you free. Um, you know, I who love you, who have been gracious to you. Um, then I give you these commandments. So to fear, love, and trust in that God is to already have a filial kind of fear. Yeah. Please. Uh, you said earlier that we could idolize family members' possessions. Could we idolize our own bodies? Oh, absolutely. Because I think of it with regard to these huge marches that are going on. What they're saying is this wonderful, immense gift from God, this miracle, is not as important as I am. Mm, yeah. And it's re it really strikes me. What could be more important? Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it was John Calvin who said, um, the human heart is an idol maker. Basically, if it exists, we can turn it into an idol. <laughs> um, so certainly with our bodies, we can. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, let's go a little further then. So we left off um, really in the last 25% of that page or so. Without, that is outside the city, without our liars. Beware then of every cunning artifice of sin, of all that savors of falsehood. Okay, so again, what is he doing here? Big picture, zoom out. He's, he's leveraging our love for eternal life, our desire for eternal life, and to be face to face with Christ, and all that that means. And he's saying, if that's the, if that's the love and desire of your heart, then leverage that right now to put to death these things that are contrary to that. He continues, if thou art longing to be admitted to the marriage supper of the Lamb, long also for the coming of Christ thy bridegroom. The Spirit and the bride say, come. But if thou hast not the earnest of the Spirit, through which thou mayest call the Lord cometh, Never will Christ the bridegroom admit to thee, or admit thee, to his heavenly nuptials. Okay, we're longing for the wedding feast of the Lamb. That means we're longing for him to come. And if we're not longing for him to come, then there's a big problem. <laughs> so this idea of like, well, I hope God comes, or I hope Jesus returns, just not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a big problem there in one's uh, theologies, sure, but in one's very perception, in the way you're seeing Christ, in the way you're seeing reality. Listen, if you've got a bucket list, I don't mean to pick on you too much, but this is kind of one of the problems with the bucket list. What's the bucket, what's the bucket list, like, presume the whole thing is based upon this kind of distrust of like, I better get this in now, and if I don't, God's gonna close the door on that. I mean, what is <laughs> What does that have to say, say about God and your faith in God? What does that have to say about your knowledge of what's to come? I mean, look, don't get me wrong, please. Um, I'll spare you writing the email you're already, you know, <laughs> planning. 
I mean, f- feel free to engage creation in the, in the gifts God has given you. I'm not, I'm not speaking against that. But the very idea of like, I gotta get this all in. I gotta grab it all while I can is a completely faithless idea. And it's a complete, it reveals a complete misperception of reality. And more importantly, of who God is. Yeah. So it's like if God gives you the freedoms to do these things, take them as gifts and blessings, but don't look at it with desperation, with this sense of like, ah, if I don't see it now, I've lost out for all eternity. If I don't do it now, I've somehow, you know, lost out. Like, again, consider our Lord Jesus. Now, he did travel around a bit, but he was hardly a globetrotter. Where, where, what did our Lord Jesus need to see? What was his bucket list like? I mean, there wasn't one, and he didn't need to see anything, and he traveled for the sake of others, not for the sake of himself, and he viewed this life as not worth idolizing. Not worth idolizing. So there's something there. Again, I'm not trying to throw a bucket of cold water on your travel plans, all right? Um, but, but just understand, understand that uh, in our culture, this has gotten way, way overblown, and it reveals a deeper misperception of the nature of this life, the nature of reality, and the nature of God. Um, maybe even most shallow of all, of all, the idea that the pleasures of this life, however satisfying they might be, are simply incomparable to those treasures that are yet to come, those treasures that can't be, uh, you know, stripped away by delayed flights or failed cameras or uh, global pandemics or whatever else. Okay, so we're longing for the wedding. You know, communion is a foretaste of that. And communion is also a foretaste of the judgment. That kind of factors into this conversation we're having here too about fearing the Lord. It's why, it's why we're so reverent when we go forward to the Lord because we realize we're before the one who is crucified and risen. We're before the one that even though we can't see him face to face, we will. We're before the one who is our judge. And this is such, this is such a beautiful and comforting thing about Holy Communion. What does our judge say? For you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He speaks words of tenderness and comfort. Here's the thing. When you die and you face Jesus, or on the last day when you're standing before him in judgment, it's not going to be a different Jesus than the one you met every Sunday in Holy Communion. And he's not suddenly going to change his tune. (laughs) In fact, you have not seen him face to face, but he has seen you face to face. He knows you by name. Indeed, he knows you and me. Better than we know ourselves. Lord, you tell me why I'm this way. <laughs> Lord, you tell me what, where my sin is because I cannot comprehend. I cannot comprehend it. I don't know why. I don't understand. And the Lord will very easily unravel that knot that we could not. The Lord will very easily discover for us our true identities. This whole business in the modern world about create yourself, create your own identity, create your reality. I just complete, well, first, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, I mean, it's complete nonsense, isn't it? But it's also, it's also complete idolatry. And not only is it complete idolatry, but it just doesn't work. You want to make a mess of your life? Let me give you a recipe. Go create your own reality. I, what a disaster that is. 
the whole the whole passivity of faithfulness to God and being God's children is to say, God, you have always known what's best. You tell me what is best. You know me more than I know myself. You make me into your image as you see fit. Now that's the beauty of the faith of the children of God is we know who our Father is. We know who our Savior is. And as Gerhard causes us to reflect, we see our Savior as the bride who loves the church. We don't come to communion as individuals either, although there's that element. That for you, for the forgiveness of sins, that you is plural. Now it is direct, it is spoken to you so that your heart has to believe, but it's plural. It's not singular. It's never just me and the Father. It's never just me and Jesus. It's me as a member of the bride of Christ, and therefore thus also Jesus, then embracing not merely me, not only me, but all of us, my brothers and sisters together, in, is, as one body. So, coming to the Lord Jesus in Holy Communion is coming to the bridegroom, and it's a foretaste of that wedding feast that is to come. And that's really what, uh, it's really what Gerhard's getting at here, so that every, every time we go to the Lord's Supper, it's a foretaste of the last day. It's a foretaste of His return. We look forward. We say, come Lord Jesus. We want him to come anytime. Until then, that, that desire within us is fulfilled, temporarily, fulfilled in the Lord's Supper. I've come for you and in this way. And this is sufficient. This will suffice until my glorious revelation and final coming. So yeah, this is, I mean, this is poignant. This is, and if that's what we're looking forward to, if that's what all eternity is, and this life is a speck, it's like, you know what I think I'm going to do on Sunday morning instead? I think I'm going to go golfing. Wait, your desire is to go into heaven and be with the Lord for all eternity in the wedding feast of the Lamb, and here you have a foretaste of it, and your plan is to go surfing and make yourself shark bait? <laughs> Your goal is to sleep in? I mean, it's just, it's so, there's so much discontinuity. And so Gerhardt's just pointing that out. Gerhardt's just pointing out, if this is eternity, if this is what we're waiting for, if this is the cry of our hearts and souls and all our desires, how could we ever let anything else get in the way of that? It's really, really inconsistent. So we want to repent of those inconsistencies. We want to leverage God's love for us and our return love for Him over and against the phantasms, the illusions and delusions that have overtaken the world in this, these gray and latter days. Where it's like, well, I can be with God anywhere. No, no, you really can't. Not like this. Not like this. It's what I tell the confirmation kids sometimes when they, you know, they say, well, I, God's with me and, you know, God's with me in my, on my surfboard. God's with me at my soccer game. Yeah, God's, God's a lot of places he doesn't want to be. <laughs> just easy, just easy. Um, but yeah, he's not there for you. He's not there in a way that he's showing his graciousness in Christ. He's not there in, in his word and spirit, delivering his gifts, enlightening your, your eyes, cleansing your conscience, restoring you and building you up, reforming you into his image. Uh, he's not doing that at your soccer game or on your surfboard or on your mountaintop hike. He's not doing any of that. He never promises to. There's not a word of scripture that says he will. Not a word. 
But where he does promise to act is in divine service and in, at his table. Okay, so Gerhard really, really putting it to us in a good way. He continues, I think where this is about the fourth line down from the top of 273. Wouldst thou have a name and a place in the new heaven and the new earth? Revelation 21.1. Why then set thy heart so fondly on the perishing things of this life? It's true. We've all kind of got this dream in our minds, even if we, even if we come to terms and realize it's not a reality. We all kind of got this, this I'm going to go live here. I'm going to retire and it's going to be my my beach house. I'm going to retire. It's going to be my, my mountain hermitage where I'm not going to have to talk to anyone ever. I'm, I'm going to, this is where I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. This is going to be my little piece of heaven on earth. Okay. So I love this. I love this. Wouldst thou have a name and a place in the new heaven and the new earth? Why then set thy heart so fondly on the perishing things of this life? Now again, find enough. Have goals. Fulfill them. But don't let your heart get set on them. Don't mistake the goals of this life as somehow true bliss. In fact, you know, this is, this is really a generational thing. My generation and older generations, we have to start thinking this way because, because the church footprint here in America is shrinking. So it's like, yeah, you want your, you know, I'll, I'll speak per- personally, you know, kind of my idol is, is in this vein is, hey, where's that, where's that mountain cottage that I can go disappear up to, you know, where I, where I'm completely isolated and, and at peace and, okay, but, but, uh, all right, Rody, where's the church that you're going to? <laughs> oh, whoops, <laughs> that wasn't in the, that wasn't in the dream, was it? Boy, I wonder who sent that dream and that vision. Um, this is, um, but this is something that we all need to be cognizant of because it's like, I'm going to go retire here. I can't wait to get out of California for whatever reason. I can't wait to go, you know, retire and get out of California and go live. Okay, well, where's the nearest church? Did you think about that? Because you probably want to. It's a big deal. And you probably want it near enough to you too, so that even when you get uh, older and less agile, and it's harder to get around, you want it close enough to you that you can get there with ease. So I think that this is, you know, these are challenging words for us, and they need to be. They need to be. If we're seeking for that new heavens and that new earth, then why set our hearts so fondly on the perishing things of this life? And how can we not then also prioritize those things which are a foretaste of all that is to come? He continues, Wouldst thou be made a partaker of the divine nature? Ah, this is beautiful. This is the idea of, of theosis properly understood. Christ becomes as we are, that we might become as he is. Indeed, the scriptures even go so far as to call us small g gods. And if that's scandalous, I mean, Jesus uses that language, the psalmist used that language, and if that's scandalous to you, you really need to revisit this language, sons of God. So, one of my least favorite theologians, but he makes a good point, Stephen Colbert, uh, what's the? <laughs> he makes a good point here, though. Um, what's the son of a duck? A duck. Okay. Well, what's the son of God? God. 
We don't need any proof more than that that Jesus is God than to be, for him to be called the Son of God. Okay, a son of something means it's that thing. What does it mean for us to be sons of God? Not that we become divine in some sense that we become capital G God. No, no, that's too far. There's always a distinction between the creator and the creature. And yet, how far could we push that? Well, how far do the scriptures push it? It's God himself who calls us sons of God. It's God himself who, I mean, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons of God. And we just go, yeah, well, sons of God, what's the big deal? No. Behold what manner of power the love, or behold what manner of love, what love, what incredible love has been given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And we have the power to become the sons of God, the scriptures say. What is going on there? That's exactly this thought. It's almost audacious. It's almost impious to us. But this is the goodness, unimaginable, unspeakable goodness of God. Wouldst thou be made a partaker of the divine nature? You can think of this from all different kinds of angles, too. To be so united with Christ, with his divine nature, that his death is our death, his burial, our burial, his resurrection, our resurrection, his new life, our new life. That when, when we partake of his body and blood, we become his true body and his life becomes our life and he is the divine one and we're inseparable from him. Again, this can be viewed from all manner of angles, but it is a really profound aspect of scripture and of Christian Lutheran teaching. Would thou be made a partaker of the divine nature? Why then cling so tenaciously to these empty creature comforts? Dost thou look forward to that building of God, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens? 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Why then shouldst thou not desire this earthly house of thy habitation to be dissolved? You know, and that's, that comes down to that kind of stewardship principle. Everything we have is simply on loan, and it's temporary. And we need to view our stuff, our lives, everything we've built and done is just that. It's ours for a time. Dost thou indeed desire to be clothed upon with thy house, which is from heaven? 2 Corinthians 5.2 why not then provide for it so that thou mayst not be found naked? So this idea of being clothed, okay, we've, we've seen that idea before, but now being clothed in a redeemed body, a body made perfect. Our souls being clothed in perfect bodies in the resurrection. If the adorable Trinity dwell not in thy heart by faith in this life, never in the future life will that Trinity dwell in thee to thine unspeakable glory. If thou dost not enjoy the beginnings of eternal life in thy soul here, thou wilt never rejoice in its full fruition there. Such beautiful lines. 
Such beautiful lines. And I think these lines too can be meditated upon because if you weren't inspired by Gerhard's meditation on eternal life, if these things didn't resonate deeply within you, if he didn't name your desires and your joy, the joy of your heart to see the Lord Jesus and, ha- and have your soul fulfilled in him, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's literally what he's saying. Then there's something wrong with you. You should come see your pastor. but now let's flip this let's meditate on these lines and let's flip it if these desires are in you what does that prove that the holy spirit indeed does indwell you he has changed your heart he has changed your will so that your heart and your will have already begun to be set on those things above in holy baptism father son holy spirit the trinity himself indwells you already and is moving you through your life things that you perceive as both good and bad all these things he is working together for your good driving you to the truest and greatest reality to behold god father son and holy spirit face to face in the company of angels archangels and all the redeemed people of god so you can take, you can take, I mean, this is one of these things where again, if you're not in some sort of state of temptation where the devil's after you and you know, tormenting you, you're just in a normal kind of Christian state, you're in a normal kind of state of grace. There's absolutely zero wrong with looking at these desires and saying, the desires of the flesh are not the desires of the spirit. In my flesh, I see all these desires of the Holy Spirit. That means he must indwell me. That means he must be with me. If he wasn't with me, I wouldn't rejoice over these things. I wouldn't long for these things. I wouldn't hear their truth whatsoever. And so from these, uh, the, the desire for eternal life, we can gra- gain great confidence that the Lord is in fact in us and is working mightily within us. So I'm going to wrap up that, um, the meditation just with that thought right there. But let me, um, let me give you the last word if you want it. If you've got any, um, questions or comments on the text thus far, what I do still want to do and I'll plan to do, um, next week is we will look at the intermediate state. When you die, where do you go? Okay. And then is that, is that eternity? Is that just, the dead end, you die, and there you go. Are we waiting for more? What are the dynamics there? What are the teachings of Scripture? We'll get out our Bibles. Please bring your Bibles if you didn't already. We'll be in them thoroughly next week. And we'll even answer, you know, answer some questions like, well, will I know other people in heaven? How will I feel if I get to heaven and loved ones aren't there? And it'll also be an opportunity for you to ask any questions that you might have or might be wrestling with. And if there isn't an answer, I'll be honest and tell you that. Uh, but the scriptures do give us more, I think, than most people realize. So we're going to look forward to all of that. Are there any thoughts, questions, comments on what we covered today? I see a hand popping up here. Thank you. 
I was just thinking last uh, last week, uh, Daryl and I talked a lot about Bible class. It, it felt really deep to us last week. I mean, you not you so all, much this week. Oh yeah, no. I was just going to say it, it always is. It always is. But last week, you know, we just had a lot in our heads and we were discussing it. But one of the things you talked about was the, the all-consuming love that God has for us, and how uh, and how at the rail at the Holy Communion that. When we are eating God's body and drinking His blood and and that whole thing, however you said it, I don't remember now. But uh, I was thinking as a grandmother now, and my mother used to say to our kids, or when you see a little baby, you'll look at him and say, "I love you so much, I could just eat you up." And, and you know, we I've heard it a lot, and I used to laugh at that. But I'm thinking it that consuming love is just like that, only right. more. I think what God's love for us, and I'm trying to be more loving towards other people, um, maybe not to that extent but you know it's a consuming thing right, it's really right. consuming there is and there's something about that even with the action of kissing yeah have you thought about that have you thought about how bizarre kissing is why why not just touch elbows or noses like the eskimos yeah it's weird why and i think that you're onto something I think this, I think God has created us with these expressions and, and we use our mouths to eat and the act of kissing is, is in that same like domain. Yeah. And it's the desire, it's the desire to consume, not to destroy, but to hold closely forever to become one with. You know, I, I know that, um, like with my own children, that's those kinds of feelings of like, Oh, it's just like, I could just hold you forever. I don't want you to grow up. I want you to just stay like this forever with me like this forever. Um, and of course, husband and wife experience that as well. And, um, these are all, these are all kind of foretastes and foreshadowing of that, of that great desire. And, and as you pointed out, um, the chief foretaste of this is the, is the Lord's Supper. Think of all the language in the scriptures. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And all the language of meals and eating associated with God, there, in, in and behind that is all of this oneness and God's love and desire to be so one with us um, that there really are no barriers. In fact, all these other things, you know, marriage, children, all, you know, whatever you can conceive of in this world, they're all just um, very, very little pale types of that which will be revealed in its fullness. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Wonderful thought. Here's a hand. I just kept thinking we can't forget the one who filled up his barn to the brim so that he could relax and was told, sorry, tonight ah, your life yes. is going to be taken from you. Yes, Jesus sums up all of Ecclesiastes in one parable, as he's known to do. Yeah, the, the rich guy whose biggest, whose biggest problem in life is I've got too much gear. I got a, my, I've only got a three-car garage, and now I've got four cars. What am I going to do? That's his biggest problem. And so he builds his, uh, his fourth garage. He builds his larger barn. FDIC limits are met in various institutions. Oh, no, there's even more. I guess I've got to open another account. He's done, and then what does he say? What does he say? This is so good. Soul. <laughs> He's so self-absorbed. He's so self-absorbed. Ah, and he tells himself to rest. As if you could rest in. You know, and that's the illusion. That's where, that's where all of us as Christians, we have to realize like more, more, more doesn't make, doesn't actually satisfy, does it? 
It's like, it's like if you're impoverished, you go, well, I'd like to try. <laughs> but, but look at the wealthiest people in the world. Are they satisfied with what they have? No, they want more and more. If, as soon as you make enough, like, I don't know what it is, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, you've got enough that you can live like a king for the rest of your life, do you stop there? No, of course they don't. More, more, more. And it's not satisfying, it's not fulfilling. And ultimately then, even those things that insofar as they are temporarily satisfying or fulfilling or something like that, boom, they're all taken away from you in the moment of an eye. You fool, God says. Soul, he says to himself, you fool, God says to him. It's such a glorious parable. Thank you for bringing that up. When I was a teenager... Um, of course, I, I didn't wasn't afraid I could die because, of course, I was a teenager. Um, but I was afraid at the time. I believed all the crap about uh, uh, rap, the rapture and all that stuff. I was afraid Jesus would come. And I remember praying things like, don't come before I get married. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Please don't come before I get married. Right. And you see, it's kind of absurd. See, I mean, you see, it's something stupid that a teenager would think, you know, don't, don't come before... I get married, but you compare that. I mean, marriage is a big, important thing. If you're gonna, if you're gonna say there was one thing to delay, you know, the Lord's coming, maybe it would be marriage. Maybe the teenager, that teenage idea wasn't so stupid after all. Certainly, going to Europe or, or, you know, uh, right, getting a Ferrari seems less mm-hmm. important. I mean, you know, that the stupid, silly. Of course, probably it was mostly about sex. But um, oh. right, the, the stupid <laughs> okay. teenage idea I had don't don't come before you before I get married. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, it is actually less than what a lot of adults go through. You know, don't. Yeah, right. Of all of all the misguided thoughts, it's maybe the most pious, <laughs> maybe the or least, or the, yeah, the, the least, least misguided would be yeah. a better way to yeah. put it. Right. You know, it's, yeah, exactly it, right. I mean, I so all of this. I mean, and this will be the final point before we go. But but all of this is really indicative too of this sense of like. Well, I have to get married now because if he comes, I'll never have a chance to get married. I mean, what's the misunderstanding of reality there that, uh, you know, obviously you, you weren't perceiving as a teenager, but you do perceive now. And, and that's this, that's this idea that it, everything that earthly marriage is, is completely and abundantly fulfilled in the marriage between Christ and his church, of which we're participants. Everything that marriage, all the joys of marriage are taken up and given even more abundantly. So you don't miss out on marriage just because you missed out on earthly marriage. Um, and that's true for all these earthly things. Like, hey, I never got a chance to go to Europe. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, you can go many more marvelous places than that. Um, so you see, anything that we would grasp hold of in this life and say, no, this is it, this is unique, this is all there is, you're misperceiving reality. These are all foreshadowings, foretaste types of the greater things which are to come. So if you miss out on the foretaste, that's like lamenting like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I missed out on circumcision in the Old Testament. No! I mean, nobody thinks that, right? No, so nobody thinks like, oh, I missed out on uh, earthly marriage. Bummer. Now I'm up here in heaven. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody thinks that. All these things are just foretaste types and shadows to be of that greater reality to be fulfilled. So we'll have to leave it there. The Lord be with you.